Will you turn with me, please, to the passage that we read together? Uh, Genesis chapter 4 from verse 25, and basically reading on until verse um, uh, 27 of chapter 5. Chapter 4 of Genesis records for us the line of uh, Cain, and it shows us uh, ending up with Lamech, uh, who (laughs) stepped out of God's way uh, in such an obvious way, killing a man like his father had done, taking two wives and breaking the uh, marriage ordinance that God had established Uh, it was clear that the way of Cain was the way of godlessness and the way of sin. Uh, But in chapter 4, at the end, we're told, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said, She hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And uh, we see this uh, great um, emphasis upon the fact that Seth is the replacement for Abel. And Abel, as you know, was the uh, polar opposite of Cain. He had worshipped God according to God's instruction, according to God's command. He had brought himself and his offering to the Lord, and was found accepted of the Lord um, uh, by the grace of God. Cain worshipped God according to his own ideas, and according to his own pride, and he was rejected. Uh, but here in uh, uh, this, uh, these closing verses of chapter 4, we have this ray of hope, God giving another man in the place of Cain, uh, uh, in the place of Abel, in other words, a godly seed is given to um, uh, uh, Adam and Eve, and we move into chapter five that says this is the book of the generations of Adam, and you might expect that what we have following is a standard genealogy um, uh, of the Bible. But a moment's glance at that uh, genealogy will show you that it is not the standard. It is not just an ordinary genealogy. It is a record um, uh, of the, uh, the seed of the woman, the godly seed of the woman. Now you see that brought out most clearly uh, in verse 3. Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. You'll notice right at the beginning of this this record, this genealogy of the godly seed, Cain is missed out. There is no record of Cain because this is not simply to record the sons and daughters or the sons of Adam. It is there to record the generation of the godly seed. And you can trace that through as it moves step by step through those who were uh, the, as it were, the substitute for Abel, 
you see the line of Seth following through until at the end of the chapter you get to uh, Noah, whom we are told found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And these um, uh, uh, are to be found, these things are to be found to remind us of how things began in the scriptures. The book of Genesis, as you know, means a book of beginnings. That's what the word means, beginnings. And you have, uh, in the beginning, you have the creation of the world. You have uh, the creation of the various ordinances, work and um, uh, uh, marriage and family and so on. You have the beginnings of the offering of sacrifices where God teaches Adam and Eve how to uh, come with a blood sacrifice. You have um, uh, the beginning of all of these things, most especially you have the beginning of the gospel in chapter 3 of Genesis. And here the theme of beginnings continues. And uh, what we have um, are the beginning of three things that would form the pattern of things to come and uh, give us an insight into how God is working amongst men and in the world in his grace. You notice in the first place the um, uh, birth of the church. We are told in verse 26 of chapter 4, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, um, uh, the birth of Seth is seen in two ways. Um, uh, it is seen as the gift of God. Uh, that is how Eve speaks of him, as we've noticed. And um, uh, Adam and Eve see him as a replacement uh, for, the, uh, for Abel. Why was that important? Because in chapter 3, a promised seed had been promised. A one who would bruise the head of the serpent. One who would uh, be victorious over the one who had brought the blessings um, of God crashing down, as it were, in the fall of Adam. And so uh, there is the promise right at the beginning of this gospel saviour, this gospel messiah. And that was not to be seen in Cain. Cain had shown what metal he was made of. And so here we have the promised seed, at least in its beginning, the one through whom Christ after the flesh would come. And then again, we see um, uh, in uh, verse 26, with the birth of this promised seed, with the birth of Seth, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, we're not to think for a moment that prior to this men didn't pray to God, that men didn't worship God. We see right at the beginning um, uh, of the creation after man's fall, God comes and he clothes uh, Adam and Eve with skins. And the usual understanding of that is this is where Adam and Eve were instructed and shown how to worship God aright. 
in the very next generation with Abel, we see Abel coming according to what he had been taught. And he offers an acceptable sacrifice to God. And in that, there would have been prayer and worship. So it's not that this is the beginning of worship per se, but it's the beginning of gathered worship. It is the beginning of, um, as it were, men coming together to call upon the name of the Lord. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, communal worship, public worship, the first record in the Bible, if you will, of a public gathering for the praise and worship of Almighty God. And so here we have something that began. And uh, we uh, can say certain things about this gathering together, this men beginning to call upon the name of the Lord. Certain things are implied in this, and these certain things are important. Those, for example, who call upon the name of the Lord are not ashamed to identify with him. Now remember, they were living in a terrible society. We think our society is bad. We think that things couldn't get any worse but you have to remember, in the very next chapter, we are told that the imagination of men's hearts was only evil continually. Men and women in the earth did everything that they could to erase the influence of God in their lives. And they were of such wickedness and so determined in their wickedness that God repented of having created the world and caused the flood to destroy humanity but for those eight in the ark. And that is the kind of society that Seth lived in. That's the kind of society that Enoch, uh, Enos um, uh, uh, lived in. They are calling upon the name of the Lord in the midst of a hostile, God-hating society. And so they are um, a reminder to us that in the face of all this hostility, they were not ashamed to own the Lord. They were not ashamed to be marked out of those who called upon the name of the Lord. Isn't there a lesson there for us, dear friends? Don't we see how much of the wickedness of um, uh, Enos's day is prevalent today. Don't we grieve over the godlessness and the hatred against the things of God? The tendency, of course, is for us to shy back, to go underground, to keep our faith private and secret. And yet we are called upon to call upon the name of of the Lord, not ashamed to own the Savior, not ashamed to own the truth, not ashamed despite the world being against us, not ashamed to follow Jesus Christ. And so we are reminded of the beginnings of this, and it began in a worse situation than we're in, if it was possible in those days. It's possible for us 
today. And so there was one of the marks, these um, marks of this early church. But also they were united not simply by natural or physical bonds. What do I mean by that? Well, remember that Enos and the descendants of Cain were, were related. They were all of the one family, if you will. And yet here is part of that family, and they are worshipping the Lord even at the cost of family relationships, even at the cost of having to reject their brothers, their sisters, their cousins, their uncles, their aunties, whatever, reject them and say, we will not follow you, but we will follow the line of Seth. We will follow the line of Enos. We will call upon the name of the Lord. You see, these relations, important though they were for the people of Enos' day, important though they were, they were secondary relationships compared with that great relationship these people were in. What united them was the bonds of saving grace. What united them was the uh, worship of the one true God. They were united under the one purpose and under uh, the one Savior. They identified with the culture of the godly seed. All around them, their brothers, sisters, uncles, aunties, whatever, they're identifying with the seed of Cain. They're seeing that's the popular way. They're seeing that's the majority way. And yet despite that, this group of people, maybe far distant cousins, they're brought together in a closer relationship than family could ever manufacture. And that is true today, is it not? That God's people are brought from all different kinds of backgrounds. In a congregation like this, it is probably true to say that if we were to rely simply upon our ordinary natural relationships, occupations, likes and dislikes, we would not be friends with one another. We would not be united like this. But what is it that binds us together? It is Jesus Christ the Savior. It is that saving work of God that has brought us together under the one head. It is that which brings, as it were, a replacement for all those family, all that all those relations that we have had to reject and not follow. But it has brought us to a greater relationship. We have brothers and sisters in the Lord. We have an elder brother. We have a father in heaven. We have a family that far surpasses any family relationship. And this is not just something that was true in Enos's day. Uh, Christ himself, you remember, he was preaching. And uh, someone came and said, your mother 
and your brothers, uh, your brethren are outside. And he looked upon the gathered congregation who were hearing the word of God. And he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? These are my brothers and mother. And not, you cannot suggest for a moment that Christ is despising his earthly relations. But what he is saying is there's something more important. And that is that unity. Have you ever thought what a privilege it is to be gathered here with the people of God? We worship God so frequently, each week, week after week after week, and it becomes a habit with us. But dear friends, this is, this is a great privilege that you are enabled by the grace of God to come together with those who call upon the name of the Lord. Public worship, the public gathering of the people of God is a God-given thing. And it should surpass all other priorities and all other relationships. And so they are rejecting the Canaanite culture and they are embracing, if you will, the culture of the godly seed. But not only is that true as a mark, but also as a mark, their calling upon the Lord's name showed that they acknowledged dependence upon him. They are calling upon God's name because they are dependent um, uh, 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 upon him. They believed he heard them. You don't pray unless you think there's someone listening. Or at least you don't continue to pray unless you believe there's someone listening. I'm sure many of you had that at the early stages when you first were awakened. You cried out to God and it seemed that the heavens were as brass. It seemed as though nobody was hearing but you kept on, and you kept on. And now you know, thou that art the hearer and answerer of prayer. You know that from experience. You know that you can speak with God Almighty in heaven through Christ. And this God hears you. He answers you. And so they are acknowledging that they are dependent upon this God. We are taught our dependence at the most fundamental and basic level. Give us this day our daily bread. We are taught by Christ to be dependent upon God for the very basics of life. Well, dear friends, do you want to grow as a Christian? Congregation, do you want to grow as a congregation? You are as dependent upon God for that growth as you are for your daily bread. And God is not reluctant to give. If any man ask, if a child ask um, uh, for bread, will you give him a stone? How much more will my Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? 
Do you see it, dear friends? Calling upon the name of the Lord is a testimony that we are depending upon the Lord. And we're not ashamed to be dependent. We're not ashamed to wait upon the Lord. We're not ashamed to ask him like a beggar for blessing. We call upon the name of the Lord. And they had confidence, as we have confidence, that he heard them. But as we think about this birth of the church, we must remember that this is God's provision. Giving this public face to the worship of God is God's doing. And he doesn't just bring men and women together in the days of Enos. He doesn't just, as it were, influence them to gather but he makes provision for them. You might wonder what provision. Well, let me just mention this, that God gave not just a godly seed to come together, but he gave prophets to lead, to teach, to guide that godly seed. We mention two of these prophets. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, Jude tells us. He says, the Lord shall come with 10,000 of his saints. Here are a people and they are surrounded with the godless Canaanite culture. And here is a prophet telling them, that the Lord is coming. And the Lord is coming with 10,000 of his saints. Now we're going to touch on this in a little moment. But just think about it. Who are the saints that are coming with the Lord? What does that tell us about what happens to men and women that die in this godless society? Who trust in the Lord and call upon his name. But we'll touch on that in a moment. And then we have Noah. Noah, we are told, prophesied. He prophesied of something that seemed so absolutely ridiculous, that there was a flood coming. He prophesied and warned his generation to flee from the wrath to come. And so here is God, and he is not simply encouraging, as it were, or leading his people to gather together in that embryonic church, but he is making sure that they're cared for. We're only given these two prophecies of these men, but they were prophets provided by the Lord. What do we have? we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have not only Enoch and Noah's prophecies, but we have the whole of Scripture. We are a people blessed by God in his care for his gathered church. 
It is not simply that he makes a statement, um, uh, I will build my church. He takes steps to build his church. So that in Ephesians we are told that he ascended up on high. He led captivity captive. He received gifts for men. And amongst those gifts were the officers of the church, apostles, evangelists, pastor, teachers. And he sends them forth. And he establishes in the congregations, elders and deacons. God is doing all this. God is still caring for his church. He still speaks through the prophecy of the word of God to his church. We're not left in the dark. And this is our comfort in the midst of the godless culture we live in, just as it was for these people in the Canaanite culture. They had God's um, pro, uh, the privilege of worshipping God publicly, and they had the privilege of God speaking to them through the prophetic word. And we have more. What a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. So we see here beginnings, the beginning of um, uh, the church, the birth of the church. But you can't have but noticed as we read through chapter 5, it's like a walk in a graveyard, isn't it? You hear of all the godly seed, one after another, and he died, and he died, and he died. And... Uh, this is an evidence, if ever there was, of how deceptive Satan had been when he tempted Eve in the garden. You shall not die. And here, like a, a beating drum, generation after generation after generation, and he died. That's the reality that all of us face and it is a reminder to us of why we die. We die because of Adam's sin and our relationship to Adam in that sin. We die because we sin. But we die more particularly, more correctly, because we have sin in Adam. It's not just our sins that condemn us. We are those who are in sin. We are sinners by nature and practice. And we must never forget that. We die because our covenant head died. Adam died. And physical death is ultimately the result of spiritual rebellion. Oh, it's true that man can do much, and isn't that the great, um, as it were, uh, the, 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 the great goal of many to have a sort of elixir of life so that we can live longer and longer and longer? Well, that might be the case, but the, ne the death knell will come. And we die. 
And that's just the simple reality. For many, extended life means extended rebellion. What a, what a thought that is. What a thought that is. We, if we are believers, should be thinking extended life should be extended service. May God prove that to be the case. We think about this graveyard of chapter 5. And we contrast it with the clamor that we have today to legalize euthanasia. Why not, if people, if everybody's going to die, why not ease them on their way? Why not remove the pain and suffering and just ease them on their way and get them out of all that misery? What about the old and the lonely who are fed up with life and they don't want to go on? Let them just take their own lives or help them to take their own lives. That is what we hear sometimes. But dear friends, that is assuming that death, because it's universal, is natural. Death is not natural. Death is not a natural thing. It is universal. Everybody, or almost everybody, is going to die. But it's not natural. Man was created for life, not for death. Man was made um, a, a body-soul unity. What is death? It's the separation of the body and the soul. What could be more unnatural for that which is a body-soul unity to have the two separated? Even for the Christian. Death is not natural. The scriptures tell us it's, a, it's an enemy. Oh, it's an enemy with the sting drawn and the bands loosed, but it's still an enemy. We still all have to die. But for God's people, it becomes asleep. We fall asleep in Jesus. And so let us away with those ideas that death is natural and see it for what the scriptures say. It is an unnatural consequence of the rebellion and sin of Adam. And there is no way we can avoid it but the way of the gospel, the way of grace. And so we have the continuing tyranny of death in chapter 5. But in, these, in this portion, we also have what we might call the triumph of hope. Look at how, um, uh, how the first bit of chapter 4 ends, ends at, at verse 24. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech um, seventy and sevenfold. 
So you have the seven from Adam on the Canaanite side. And he is godless, he is wicked, he is rebellious against God. But then look at the seventh from Adam on the Seth side, on the godly seed side. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he walked with God. He walked with God. You know, that surely denotes close personal communion. And again, let us think about that for a moment. Because Enoch is living in such days of gross wickedness that we cannot imagine. And yet it's possible for an ordinary man like Enoch to have close personal communion with God, even in the midst of that. And we should not think that because it's hard to be a Christian in these days that such close personal relationships with God are impossible. It may be hard. We may need to do all sorts of things to ensure that we can even have personal communion with God, let alone close personal communion with God. But Enoch is a reminder to us that even in godless societies, godless generations, men and women can walk with God. We are told the secret of his walk with God. And we are told that in chapter 11 of Hebrews, it was by faith. You see, it's no magical um, a recipe for walking close with God. It's not the, se the seven secrets of close communion with God. It is faith, faith, faith. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Do you see, if you're a Christian, you have faith. Walking with God is not something that is impossible to you. And then we are reminded that God took him. Now we're not told how God took him, possibly the same way as Elijah was taken. We don't know, but God took him. He walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Why is that in this passage? It's to show that that tyranny of death is not absolute. It's to show that God is in charge over the matter of life and death. It is to show that there is a way in which eventually God would destroy death, destroy death's dominion. Death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? For the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the privileged position we're in? Enoch could only see this afar off. Enoch believed that there would be a resurrection because 
The Lord is coming with the 10,000 of his saints. Enoch believed all these things. We know these things. Christ is risen from the dead. He has spoiled principalities and powers. Here we are reminded, dear friends, that God in his Savior would destroy and break what seems like an inevitable sequence, sin, death, damnation, that he could break that sequence by taking death itself and breaking death. This was something that was seen dimly in the Old Testament, but it was seen. Enoch's removal left an impression upon the saints of God. In uh, Psalm 73, verse 24, we are told that thou wilt lead me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. That word receive is the same as take. After God leading us in this world, God will take us. Our catechism speaks about the souls of believers being at their death made perfect in holiness and to immediately pass into glory. But it would be just as right, if not righter, if we can put it like that, to say the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and are immediately taken to glory. He was not because God took him. Enoch's removal was an encouragement to the church of his day and to the church today that there is a life beyond death, that death is not the victor, that God can save his people and bring them to himself. And this prophecy that the Lord would come with 10,000 of his saints, what a picture that presented. Oh, it's in, as I said before, embryonic form. We only can understand it more clearly because of what we have in the New Testament. The trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. In Thessalonians, Christ speaks about Christ, uh, Christ's second coming. It speaks about that great company that will come with him. Think of that. Every single person since the dawn of history who called upon the name of the Lord will be with him. And they will be brought in glory. And those who remain will be caught up into the air to be with him. Oh, dear friends, what a wonderful picture this is in the midst of the bleak graveyard scene of chapter 5. And the question I would leave with you is this. Do you have this hope? 
of the second coming of Christ as being for you a thing of joy. Will you be with Christ when you die? Will you be received into glory? If you are alive when he comes, will you be caught up in the air to be with him? You see, dear friends, these are questions that are important to ask. Do you believe in life after death? Or are you like the foolish Sadducees of the New Testament who didn't believe in these kind of things? Dear friends, the reality is this, that since the beginning of time, God has been teaching his church that Christ is coming again and that the dead will rise and that death will be defeated. So you see, this isn't just an ordinary genealogy. This is a message of comfort and hope. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And one of those men, one day was out walking, walking with God, and he was not because God took him. And that same God who took him will bring him back again. Just one thing for your interest, the uh, teaching that um, the Lord gave to the church, this is reflecting back in our first point, this beginning of the church given prophets who gave the prophets you see God gave the prophets yes but who gives the prophets according to the New Testament it's the spirit the spirit of Christ which was in them to prophesy Christ is building his church even at the beginning, in the Enoch's and in the Noah's that he gave them. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we bless and thank thee for thy holy word and pray that we would learn to persevere in the midst of difficult days by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Enable us, we pray, to have that hope and expectation of the early church. Enable us to uh, walk with thee. Enable us to have that close personal communion with thee. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We conclude singing from Psalm 89. Psalm 89, and we'll sing verses 1 to 4. <clears throat> Psalm 89, verses 1 to 4. God's mercies I will ever sing, and with my mouth I shall thy faithfulness make to be known to generations all. For mercy shall be built, said I, forever to endure thy faithfulness, even in the heavens thou wilt establish sure. And so on to the end of verse 4.
stand for the benediction. <coughs> the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.